Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. A few weeks ago, I was digging through some back shelves of books, and I came across a book that I hadn't picked up in years and flipped to a story that I've forgotten. This is a story by Ben Patterson. He said, in 1986, my seven-year-old son, Joel, was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome. As we watched Joel struggle, I struggled with guilt. I wonder, is it something that I've done to him? Of all of our kids, Joel was the one that I most often lost my temper with. Like his dad, he can be maddeningly bullheaded and combative. He was articulate beyond his years, and his words were often piercing and inflammatory. Words have great power in our household, and I'd frequently reacted to his words with words of my own, over and over in minute detail. I replayed mentally every confrontation we'd ever had. Guilt and remorse pounded me like heavy surf. Joel was scared, too. One night, my wife Loretta was tucking him into bed, saying evening prayers, and he spoke into the darkness haltingly. Mom, you know the things I do? I know I'm not doing them. I know Jesus wouldn't make me do them. And the sentence trailed off before he spoke the alternative to Jesus and himself. When she told me what he had said, we held each other in quiet terror and slipped to our knees in the living room to pray. The moment I closed my eyes, I saw, as in a vision, a large coiled python, its head resting on its giant body, its cold, remorseless eyes staring. It seemed to me that this snake had wrapped itself around my throat and my little boy's soul. The worst came when I was on a three-day prayer retreat at a desert monastery. I telephoned home one evening and listened as Loretta recounted an episode that Joel had had that day with what we would later come to know as corporalalia the obsessive repetition of obscenities. By the way, the only person that can offend you today is you. Don't be offended. The obscenity in question was the F word. Joel's a very moralistic child and was stricken as he whispered involuntarily over and over this word that he loathed. So my wife handled it marvelously. Taking him into the backyard, she sat with him on the swing and said, okay, let's say the F word out loud. If you, any of you ever wondered when we were going to talk about the F word in church, that day has finally come. Yeah. <laughs> let's say it out loud. Joel was incredulous. I can't say that awful word out loud. Well, can you quack it like a duck, said my wife. Joel was blessed with an impish, zany sense of humor. Her suggestion was all he needed, so mother and child sat on the back porch quacking the F word, but not so loud as the neighbors and other siblings could hear. Then they mooed it like a cow, then they clucked it like a chicken, and then they crowed it like a rooster and whinnied it like a horse. Their laughter was tentative at first, then explosive. The obsession dissolved into hilarity. Then Ben Patterson ends the story with this one sentence, what a woman I married. Isn't that good? Listen. It is easy to applaud people of character and creativity and courage. It's also easy to criticize those people who lack character, creativity, and courage. The hardest thing in the world 
is to become a person of character and courage and creativity, to quit just admiring those who are doing it and criticizing those who aren't and decide for yourself, this is the kind of person that I want to become as a follower of Jesus Christ. And that kind of courage and character and creativity is all over the book of Ruth. You have Naomi, who is a woman that tried her very best to provide for her family only to fail. I wonder if you've experienced that before. She left famine and intersected with tragedy. Her husband and her two sons died. Ruth, this daughter-in-law, now more like a daughter, returned with Naomi to an uncertain future, leaving behind everything that she had ever known, every sense of security she had ever experienced, but she knew it was the right thing to do. And then there was Boaz. We're not going to recap everything that has happened in Ruth so far, but from Ruth chapter 3, here's one of my walkaways. Boaz was a better man drunk than most men were sober. So here you have people of complete character. By the way, one more thing I've got to say about Ruth and Naomi. It seems, and we often talk here about the quartet of the vulnerable, four groups of people that God seems to be particularly in love with because the Scripture says so. The poor, the refugee, the orphan, and the widow. And if my count is right, Ruth and Naomi tick three of those four boxes. And I know a lot of people who have walked away from God over a lot less, but they hung on. They were people of courage and competence and character. And so we come to Ruth chapter 4. It's at this moment where Boaz has the opportunity and the option to marry Ruth or not. There's some obstacles in the way. So let me encourage you again, don't check out but engage your mind in what happens in this fourth chapter. Marissa will only read the first ten verses because I want to save that last swath of Scripture for the very end. And when she says, this is the word of the Lord, we respond with, thanks be to God. Meanwhile... Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, 
so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, All right, so there's one cultural thing I want to handle before we dive into this chapter, and we need to understand what a kinsman redeemer was, what a guardian redeemer was and is in ancient Israel. So we talked a few weeks ago about Leverite marriage, and it's the idea that when a woman marries into the family, she is now permanently a part of that family. That family will not let her go. So much so that if she marries the oldest brother and he dies before they're having children, then she will be given in marriage to the next oldest brother, kind of passed down. And it was the next brother's job to have children with the widow, not in his own name, but in his brother's name, so that his name would not perish from the earth. Now, all this sounds creepy and a lot like Arkansas, but (laughs) it is actually a form of compassion. There was no fallback plan. There was no social security. So he said, when you're in this family, you're going to hang on. So what if a husband dies and there are no brothers? Well, then it's the job of the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer, kind of the patriarch of the family to say, I will find a place for you in this family, and if I can't, I will marry you myself. That was the responsibility of the leader of the family. So in Ruth chapter 3, Ruth put herself in a position for Boaz to propose marriage. He does so, but there's this caveat. There is a kinsman redeemer who has the first right of refusal. Again, all of this sounds strange to us, but it's meant to be a mark of compassion and preserving names. He has the first right of refusal. He can marry you, but if he decides not to, then, then I will marry you myself. And it ends with Ruth running home to Naomi and Naomi saying, he will not rest. Boaz will not rest until this is settled. And that's exactly what happens in Ruth chapter 4. Boaz doesn't have a long breakfast. He doesn't sleep in. He doesn't stop off and get the car washed first. He gets up, goes straight to the city gates, and he sits down with the elders of the city of Bethlehem with that other kinsman redeemer there. All this to say is this. When you're overwhelmed by life, do the next right thing. Do the right thing that's right in front of you. That's what it means to be a person of courage. That's what it means to be a person of character. That's what it means to be a person who's creative. Life gets so big, we just train ourselves to do the next right thing. It's easy to appreciate those who do it and criticize those who don't. You become that kind of person. So Mary Grieg was a missionary in India, and she had this practice that's going to seem really odd to us. When she really needed to hear from the Lord, which was just about every day, She would get up, take a notepad of paper, pray about whatever was on her mind, listen to God, write down what she thought He had said, and then go do it. How simple is that? Well, one day she had a missionary friend of hers, and they had become crossways with one another, and she could not pray anymore until she reconciled this. So she took out her pad of paper, and she listened, and the Lord said, take her an egg. She said, are you kidding? You know. But she wrote it down. She went to her refrigerator, got an egg, went across the missionary compound to her neighbor, and said, you, you and I both know we've not been right lately, but for some reason I'm supposed to bring you this egg. And she was preparing dinner for her family that night and was short one egg at that moment and needed it. And just that simple gesture was communicating to her that this mattered to the Lord and that their relationship mattered, and the two resolved it. Now, I know all of that sounds so far-fetched and far-flung and a little mystical, But what would that really be like if you and I just did this, if we got up every day and said, God, just tell me the next right thing, and I'll do it. 
And by the way, he tends to speak to those who are willing to obey. So, you know what? If you want your neighborhood to be cleaner, pick up the piece of trash in front of you. If you think the world needs to be more encouraging, don't send an angry email to somebody. In fact, send them an email of encouragement. If you think more people need to pray for more people, don't plan on praying. Pray for the person who comes to mind first thing tomorrow morning, and then let them know. Do the right thing that's right in front of you. It's what it means to be a person of character and courage. So now, in contrast to Boaz, there's this other kinsman redeemer, this other guardian redeemer. Here's what I want you to notice. In all of Ruth chapter 4, he's never mentioned by name. In fact, in the Hebrew, it's kind of the equivalent of here's Boaz, and then here's Mr. So-and-so. We're not given his name. Now, this will make more sense in just a moment, but the reason he doesn't fulfill his family obligation is because he is concerned about preserving his name. And so, I think the author is intentional in this. He who is too concerned about preserving their name, their name will forever be forgotten. It's almost as though you can hear Jesus say, he who is concerned about saving his name will lose it, but who is willing to sacrifice their name will save it. So, Boaz is really savvy here. He approaches this other kinsman redeemer. They're sitting in the presence of others and says, our dead relative, Elimelech, he has this property, and somebody, one of us needs to buy it in order to keep this land and the family. And the kinsman redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, says, I'll take it, assuming that the person that he would inherit to bring into his household was Naomi. Now, Naomi was old, older, excuse me, taking my life into my hands this morning. She was older and she was past the years of childbearing, so there was no threat to his estate because if you marry a woman who can have kids, then if she does have kids, then your estate is now diluted, it's divided, it goes off to actually belong to your brother's family or to your kinsman's family and not yours. It would threaten your own children. So Mr. So-and-so goes, yeah, I'll take Naomi. You know, she's past the age of, of childbearing, but then Boaz kind of, he's, he's as stealthy as a snake and as innocent as a dove. Oh, the widow that you'll inherit, though, is not Naomi, it's Ruth. Now, one commentary put it like this. He said, Ruth was a young, vigorous widow. I don't know what that means, but that doesn't sound right. It also will be the name of my rock band, should I ever have a rock and roll band. And y'all are not finding this nearly as funny as I thought it was in the first service. Young, vigorous widow. That's a great name of a rock band. All right, moving on. Here we go. I went out and got a tattoo between services for it. I thought you would really love it, so I guess I have to get, get rid of that now. So now the, the kinsman redeemer goes, oh, she's a younger, more vigorous widow. If I have kids with her, they belong to her dead brother, my estate will be divided. Nope, I can't do it. Sorry. You know what? It's so easy to admire people who do life right. It's so easy to criticize people who do life wrong. It's harder to be that kind of person of character and courage, and we do it all the time as well. We're the Mr. So-and-so. So many things get in the way of us just doing what God wants us to do. One author puts it this way, approval, appetites, approval. So often we do things to gain the approval of others. So often we do things to satisfy our own appetites. The third one that I forgot was accomplishment, achievement. 
We want to achieve. Listen, if you spend your whole life trying to gain the approval of other people, you will live in perpetual fear. If you live your whole life feeding your appetites, you will eventually be addicted to something. And if you spend your whole life just trying to achieve, at the end, you'll eventually come up empty on the inside. By the way, all three of those you see in the Garden of Eden. You see Adam and Eve vying for the approval of the snake. You see them feeding their appetites. The apple looked good. You see them wanting achievement. They want wisdom like God, all of these things. So there's a youth minister took his kids skiing to Colorado one year, and the youth minister saw two skiers come down the mountain just almost like they were tethered together. And the skier in front was barking out orders, right, left, curve, slow down, speed up. And the skier behind was obeying every command. The youth minister trying to be funny the way we try to do sometimes as ministers, not that you've ever experienced that just 30 seconds ago here from the platform. Youth minister trying to be funny started barking out the opposite orders. When the person in front said right, he said left, and so on and so forth. But just as the two skiers went back, he saw a sign on the back of the second skier that said blind skier. But you know what? That blind skier was undeterred by what he heard that other voice saying because he was tuned in to the voice of the one leading the way. That needs to be us. That needs to be us. So many voices are competing, approval, appetites, accomplishments. We listen to one voice. Now, there's another cultural moment that happens here when the deal is sealed and Boaz is going to take the land and he's going to marry Ruth. And in fact, what he does to seal the deal in that day, this is an ancient form of a contract, he took off his shoe and presented it to the other kinsman redeemer. Now, this is the only cultural note in Ruth that is actually explained, which tells us that by the time this was in circulation, this story, that the customs had changed just a little bit. Verse 7, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. It was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. What's all that about? Our best guess is this. That it goes back to Joshua 1, verse 3, where God says, I will give you every place where the sole of your foot will tread. So it's an image that this land belongs to my family. I'll take off my shoe. I'll put my foot on that piece of property. It now belongs to me. Literally, Boaz puts his foot down. Could I encourage you? We admire those people, character and courage. We, we criticize those who don't have it. It's harder to become that person that you put your foot down. Men, I will put my foot down, and I will be a devoted husband to my wife, and I will be there for my children. Women, to put your foot down. Life is not about accumulating more and more. It's about passing on virtue to my children and being dedicated to my husband. Employees, to put your foot down, I will do a day's work for a day's labor because I'm serving not the boss, I am serving Christ. To put your foot down when it comes to Jesus, to quit dilly-dallying back and forth, a little bit in, a little bit out, I am not just a person who attends a church, I will be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
to put your foot down and to be a person of character and to be a person who's creative and to be a person of courage. We spend so much time looking at other people. Let's become the kind of men and women that God calls us to be. So, the last handful of verses. I wanted to take these myself because this is the, the high point of the book of Ruth, starting in verse 11. Then the elders and all the people who are witnessing this, they said, we are witnesses. And listen to what they say. They're speaking more than they know. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home, that's Ruth, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. This is a reference to, to Israel, who became a husband to two women. We can talk about that later, but he had 12 sons, right, that really were the formation, the base of building the entire nation of Israel. In other words, unbeknownst to them, these elders were saying, something brand new starts right here. It's almost like a new era has just commenced. Verse 12, through the offspring that the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like Perez, whose Tamar bore to Judah. This is a reference back to another member of God's family back in Genesis 38. Tamar was a young woman. Judah was an older man like that. And by the way, that's a very sordid tale in the Older Testament. But just like there was a younger woman and an older man, may you be fruitful like they were. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, now there's, there's just a prophecy all over this. These words are more than just about one heir. This would be about the ultimate heir. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. For those reading this for the first time, when they got to that point, it took their breath away. Because for the first time, they realized this was more than just about a couple of widows and a man of integrity, that through all of this pain, this was actually producing God's plan. This is a poor example, but Ian Fleming back in the 1950s was writing his first novel about a secret servant service agent from Britain, and he was looking just for the right name, and he was looking through his bookshelves. He came across one book, The Birds of the West Indies by James Bond. And when he saw that, that's it. You didn't have nearly that reaction, but it's kind of what these readers would have with Ruth. Oh, David, I get it. All of this pain was actually producing something. Now, don't get too excited, but now we're going to read the genealogy that comes at the very end. Don't throw babies into the air. Don't start cheering. Don't start, don't start doing the wave. Actually, I find it interesting. Ruth ends with a genealogy, and it picks up with a genealogy in the New Testament. But there's something here. Listen. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of 
Hezron, the father of Ram, Amenadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. There are exactly ten generations mentioned here. Ten is a number of completeness, the Ten Commandments, baby born with ten fingers, ten toes. Through all the pain, God had a plan after all. And we see it in Ruth that led to David. We see it in Mary and Joseph as it led to Jesus. And we also see it in the events of our life, all the pleasure and all the pain bringing us to Him as well. So this is a name you probably don't know. Will Campbell has written a short autobiography called The Dragonfly, Brother of the Dragonfly. In it, he's riding with a friend in his car. His name is uh, P.T. East, and he says he's a, he's a vile man, very coarse man. He knows I'm a Christian. And so his friend, as they're riding down the, the road together, he said, I'm not all that smart. Just tell me, what does Christianity mean? What is the message of Christianity so that if I'm asked, I won't look like an idiot? By the way, he doesn't use the word idiot. I'm airbrushing a lot of these words that you're about to hear. He said, tell me what Christianity means, and I'll only give you ten words. So Will Campbell in the passenger seat sat back. He thought about it for a few moments, and he came up with these words. We're all jerks, but God loves us anyway. We're all jerks, but God loves us anyway. His friend pulled over the car on the side of the road, and he said, that is brilliant. But he counted them. He said, that's only eight words. You have two words left. I don't know what Will Campbell said in response to that, but I know the two words that I would add. Jesus Christ. He is the gospel in person. That all of life, where all of this is going, what God wants more for you than maybe what you want for yourself, that all the pain would lead you to this place of knowing Him. We are jerks. But in Jesus Christ, God loves us anyway. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and let's pray together. Father, we wholeheartedly confess that we are jerks. I don't know that's what any of us intended today to say in church, but it's true. We have messed up other people's lives, we have messed up our own, and we have messed around with you. But thank you for the good news that you just won't stop loving us no matter what. So thank you for the freedom that comes in knowing Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope of Him coming into the world. Thank you for the joy, Jesus, of knowing you personally. This is our prayer in your name. Amen. We're going to sing about the love of God today. We're going to worship God together. But if you need to make a decision, if you need to pray with somebody, if you just need to come by and, and say, I need to join the church, I need to pray, I don't even know why I'm here, but I need to be here today, I'm going to invite you during this song, slip out these back doors, make your way around to our worship corridor. Right on the other side is our follow-up room. If you're ready today to make a decision or you just need somebody to pray with you, you move right now as we sing this. I'll meet you across there, and we'll begin to talk about what God is doing in your life to bring you to this point. I know it's a little scary to go into a room where you don't know anybody. You know me, you've seen me, I'll be there waiting for you. 
And if you don't need to move now, let's take a few moments and worship God together. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.